Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Uh, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. My name's Matt Hatch. Uh, I help lead the team that leads Mosaic. I've just been in the south. They send your love. We are a church that's spread over three gatherings uh, across Leeds, and uh, we've had a fun time this morning hoping for the same uh, for the north crowd. Everyone doing okay? Yeah. yeah. I do like a little bit of interaction, so smiling is where it starts. So that helps. So feel free to smile at any point in today's sermon and laugh when I tell a joke. Thank you. So we're interrupting our series on work, rest and play to sort of at the start of this new term to spend a bit of time saying what is God saying to us as a church, how we can sort of I guess get on board with what he wants from us. And so I want to speak this morning about encountering Jesus. That's my title for today's talk, Encountering Jesus. Can you all say that to me? Very good. And uh, we're going to look at a guy called Jacob and spend some time in Genesis 28. Why? Why are we looking at encountering Jesus? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, I guess when life gets hard, uh, most people uh, tend to be more open spiritually. And you may find friends of yours saying things like, um, at times like this, I wished I believed in God because that would help me get me through this situation. And I would humbly want to say, well, actually, they're wrong. Um, could you just turn me down a little bit? I'm booming like anything. Thank you. Um, I'd say humbly, I'd say I'm afraid you're wrong. Believing God isn't enough to get you through this situation. It wasn't enough for Jacob, as we'll find out. We need to encounter God, not just believe in God. We need that. If we sense God is saying anything to us as a church family, then it is precisely that, that we need to move, um, in one sense, from just believing to believing in God to experiencing him and encountering him in our everyday life. What I mean when I say that is that we need to see Jesus, we need to hear Jesus, we need to touch Jesus, worship Jesus, be satisfied by Jesus, to know Jesus in a way that actually leads to life and it leads to love and it leads to grace and reverence and peace. And without encounter with Jesus, then all the stuff that we do in church, the everyday uh, mission and the deep discipleship, the strong community we're trying to build, all of that will be hollow and empty and without power if Jesus isn't right at the heart of it. I don't think I'm preaching anything that crazy at the moment. Are you with me? Everyone with me? Yeah, great. You're just looking like you don't agree with anything I'm saying right now. I'm feeling a little bit insecure. Jesus needs to be right at the heart. Amen? Well done. So um, these encounters with Jesus, I think they will come in lots of different ways. The Holy Spirit loves to reveal the love of the Father in his Son to us. Um, but it may be for some it's more of an intellectual thing. It may be for some very uh, emotional where God touches your heart. For others of you, it may be a physical thing. And even as we pray for people at the end of today, it might be like physically apparent that God is here and touching people. It may come through prophecy as someone speaks what they sense God saying to you. It might be through prayer or you confessing sin. It might be as you receive forgiveness or as you grant forgiveness to others. It may even happen in our sleep. 
as it did for Jacob. But this revelation of God I'm convinced of is something, when it happens, you know it, that it often leads to a confession and turning away of sin. It often results in us receiving God's love and peace, and that results in our lives looking different and more Christ-like, and it needs to happen again and again. So, this is going to be a vision preach, and I have prepared a great vision preach, and it would have been really good, but I sensed this morning I was just meant to focus in on this story in Genesis 28. So, this term we're doing lots of stuff. And I haven't got any time to tell you about it. Um, but in a nutshell, we are serving the poor, we're revamping all our training, and we're running an intro course for people that are interested in Christianity. Let's get into the story. Okay, that was a quick, that's the quickest vision preach we've ever had at Mosaic. I say, if you've got your Bible, let's work through this verse by verse. I think this is what God wants to say to us. So by way of background, if you've never opened your Bible to Genesis before, Genesis 1, and two is about creation. That's like the big theme of Genesis 1 and 2, God creating the heavens and the earth and preparing it for human life. Genesis 3, we're introduced to the first humans, Adam and Eve, but they sin against God, so we move from creation to curse. Sin comes into the human condition and human history, and the result is death and sin and chaos and mayhem, and that leads us all the way up to Genesis 12 and a man called Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Bible moves not just from creation to curse, but then to covenant. Covenant is a really important word in the Old Testament because it's the language the Bible uses for a relationship with God. Relationship where God loves us, where God saves us, where God forgives us, and God promises never, ever, ever to go back on his commitment to love us. That's what covenant is all about. So Genesis 12, Abraham starts this covenant relationship with God. Covenant is God's answer to curse, and it's God's way of bringing us back to all that was good at creation. Abraham starts off not knowing God at all, but he and his wife are saved, and then they have a son through an absolute miracle, and their son's name is Isaac. Isaac has two sons, the elder is Esau, the younger is Jacob, and Jacob is the person that we're going to be looking at today in Genesis 28. Esau, it's a shame we haven't got time to look at him, he is like quite a character, a man's man. I was trying to think who, what's he like? He would be a mixture of the Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, the Hairy Bikers, and Ray Mears. Some of you might not know who any of those people are, but they're all manly in my eyes. And Hairy. And um, they are outdoor types, and Hairy, and most importantly, uh, Esau was all of those things, but he was also his father's favourite. So his father loved him. Jacob, on the other hand, makes me think of a book my kids read called The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. <laughs> Jacob just, he was a mummy's boy. He was 70, still living at home, hadn't moved out yet. He couldn't grow a beard, lacked facial hair like I do. Not really a man, Jacob. And despite this, Jacob really is the guy that I think we connect with most because his life's a bit messy. He makes mistakes. He's very sort of vulnerable at times. He is easy to relate to because of his struggles. And we find him in the middle of nowhere in verse 11. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. So we, he finds himself in a place that has no name. There's no river here, no stream, no bridge, no crossing, no anything, no well. There's nothing here of significance. He's in the middle of nowhere. And not only that, but he has nothing. Because he's having to use a stone for a pillow. If you are out camping and you're using a stone for a pillow, you know that you've forgotten your pillow or your bag or something. You are not doing great if that is your best option a stone for a pillow so he's in the middle of nowhere doesn't seem to have anything and his life seems to be falling apart and unraveling because god's promised to keep this covenant with him but his father has loved the manly esau much more than him and so jacob is desperate for the father's love and for the father's value for the father's blessing And he wants it so much that we find out in the story that he lies and steals to get it. He tries to fool the blind father and get the deathbed blessing of the firstborn. And if you know the story, he sort of is successful, but it also backfires because he betrays his brother, who is probably the best sort of um, hunter-type person you could offend. So he's on the run, and Esau knows how to hunt. And so he's running for his life. And as far as we can tell, God is remote for him. He's not praying, he's not at prayer, and he seems to be living in the shadow of his parents' faith. I don't know if any of you know that feeling where clearly the parents believe, but you're in a place where you're still working out what you think. I think that's Jacob right now. He describes God to his father in chapter 27 and says, your God. But actually it's later on in chapter 28 we find him describing God as my God. And so there's a journey that happens in chapter 28 that we're going to look at. He's also, you sense that his father and father's father and family had met with God, had encountered God in a, in a dramatic way. Abraham, Sarah, with their miraculous child, even Isaac had met with God. But Jacob hadn't until now. Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Sometimes this word stairway is translated ladder. You might have heard of Jacob's ladder. Uh, And that is actually not a helpful picture to have. A ladder is just, you know, with rungs and very narrow and it's not a case of one angel slowly coming down. I'm coming down and working away down and then an angel, I'm coming up. And it's just like this very static thing. No, think of it like this really broad ramp or staircase. And you wonder whether, as Jacob saw this huge staircase reaching up to heaven, down to earth, that he could see maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of angels ascending and descending. Angels, obviously, are heralds of the king. They are those, uh, angelic beings are those that sort of carry the, the wishes of the God of heaven. And so what he's seeing is a picture of God's power on the move. That's what he sees. And it's a very powerful thing. In verse 13, there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Again, it's important to understand that phrasing there. At the start of verse 13, there over it stood the Lord. A better translation would be there over him. Some of you might have a little note in your Bibles. Because God is either standing over the the staircase or he's standing over Jacob, over it or over him. 
And I think in the Hebrew, it's, it's clear that it's him. God is standing over him. And that's important in the story because Jacob has not only seen this huge staircase, he's not only seen angels descending and ascending, but he's seen God himself descend to him. And what does God say? Well, God says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, the east, the north, north and the south, which is what we felt God has spoken to us, actually, as a church, as we spread out across Leeds. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, and I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So God promises a couple of things here. First of all, he promises his presence. He says, I am with you. I will not leave you. And it's exactly what a very lonely and very tired Jacob needs to hear. It's exactly what many of us need to hear this morning. God coming to us and saying, I'm with you. I've not left you, even though you might feel that I'm remote, that you can't feel me or see me. I am with you. This vision says that the idea that God has left us is an illusion, but there is huge activity that's out there if we were able to peel back the veil and see what's happening in the spiritual realm. That's what happens to Jacob. He sees it, and he knows that God is with him. And for some of us, we just perhaps need to know that God is with us even though we can't tell it. It's a bit like, um, some of you, not like this, but have a fancy watch that has, you know, on the face, it has the hands. And slowly as you look at the hands, they're moving. But actually on the back, um, you can actually see inside the watch. And you can see the cogs and the springs. And they're all moving and twisting and turning and pulling. And there's lots of activity, but when you look at it, it's just... As if nothing's really happening. And I think for some of you need to know that, that on the outside you may feel that God is remote, but this passage says that God promises that he's with us, that he's at work. And often in those very lonely remote times, he's forming in his character that he could never form in some of the high, wonderful times. And all he asks of you is to hold on to his character. And that's my experience, the thing that keeps people going the longest, especially when they're missionaries or church planting and out on their own, the thing that people come back to, to keep them going in their walk with God, is trusting in his character. They know that he's good. They know that he's promised to be with them and he never breaks his promise. It's a covenant. So he promises presence, but he also promises to bless him. He says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. So God has, uh, sorry, Jacob has nothing at this point. He doesn't even have a wife, doesn't have a family. And God's saying, look, I'm going to give you your descendants, this land. His desire is blessing for Jacob. And I think we can extrapolate that to our lives as well. God wants to bless us. And obviously that blessing comes in all shapes and sizes, but you're blessed this morning. If you've given your life to Jesus, you need to know that there's a blessing that comes from being in Christ. Are you sort of getting hold of the blessing God has for you? Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. Let's not miss his reaction to this encounter, because there's an incredible thing going on here. But what he is chiefly feeling at this point is afraid. That word awesome 
It's not like, this is so awesome. It could be translated, the King James Bible translates it, dreadful. This is a dreadful place. The fear of God has fallen because he knows that he is seeing a glimpse of the holiness of God. And throughout the Bible, people have tried to see the glory of the holiness of God. Moses, who spoke to God as a man speaks to a man, he was not allowed to see the the full effects of God's glory. Isaiah, who knew God intimately, when God showed him just a glimpse of his holiness, he was completely undone and cried out, woe is me. Jacob is getting a glimpse of the holiness of God, and it's a scary thing for him. In comparison to God, he knows he is sinful. We know we are sinful. And this holy God who judges our hearts and knows the sin in our hearts, and as a consequence, because of sin that affects who we are, our very core of our being, he judges us and pronounces a sentence of spiritual death over us. Jacob is like feeling the weight of that. But what he can't understand is that he's seeing a holy God that has come to him. That's come to him. It's completely unasked for. And if you were to describe the scene, it is of a parent watching over a sleeping child. And if you're a parent here, you will have gone into your child's room at night and watch your child sleeping. And there is a powerful sense of love in those moments. And that describes what's going on here. That God is watching over Jacob. And Jacob is the swindler. He's the one that has sort of manipulated stuff to get the blessing. But there is not a word of condemnation or guilt that God speaks in this moment. It's really quite remarkable. And Jacob is puzzled. What is going on here? And he feels afraid. And it is a puzzle. And I think there are two answers in the Bible to what is going on here. Number one, Jacob sees. He describes what is going on here in verse 17. He says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's his explanation of what's going on here. The gate of heaven. Can you all say that with me? The gate of heaven. This term deliberately draws us back to Genesis 11, where mankind builds a tower, a gate to heaven, to find God. It's called the Tower of Babel. Why did they build it? Well, in those times, um, people would build a monument or a tower in order to reach God. They were called ziggurats, and they were like pyramids, but with steps on the outside, literally a stairway up to heaven. And these gates of heaven stood for man's attempt to reach God. But Jacob, in these moments, he sees how the gates of heaven should really work. God comes to him. God descends the steps to him. So it's not about him reaching him, but God comes to us wherever he wants to. This is the middle of nowhere, and God is very much present. And that is the story of the Old Testament and leaking into the New Testament, that the children of God had sinned and had run away from their heavenly father and they were lost and the father goes looking for his lost children. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of the Bible. The Christian gospel is that we've all run from God and that he is on a mission to find us and that what that is exactly what's happening here. Jacob, he didn't ask for God. God asked for Jacob. 
Jacob wasn't seeking God. God's seeking Jacob. He doesn't cry out to God. God cries out to him. And if God hadn't done this, Jacob would be forever lost. And every other religion in the world says, God is up here, we are down here, and there are things you need to do to climb the staircase to heaven. There are things you have to do. Perhaps you need to pray five times a day. Perhaps you go and need to see a certain priest. Whatever it is, perhaps you just need to be a good, decent, upright person. And you'll ascend the steps to God. But God comes down. And so how? How does God do that? How does God make uh, someone make it that his judgment? of sin and the love of the Father that he feels. Well, if you've been around long enough, you know the answer is Jesus. And it's centuries later that Jesus takes this picture of the stairway with angels ascending and descending, and he talks about it to his disciples. Let's look at what happens in John 1. This is very helpful. John 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So these are two disciples. They're looking for the Messiah. Philip thinks he's found them. Nathanael is skeptical. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. And when they saw, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. So Jesus prophesies about this man's character and says, there's a guy full of integrity. How do you know me? Verse 48, Nathan asks. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under a fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. We have no idea. But whatever it was, it was so private, it was so personal, it was so meaningful that he knew Jesus was the one who would bridge the gap between God and man. And Jesus says this, verse 50, You believe because I told you you are under a fig tree, but you shall see greater things than that. I'm, uh, he then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying what Jacob saw, angels ascending, angels descending, they were actually doing that on me. He's saying I am the stairway that Jacob saw. I am the link between heaven and earth, God and man. I am the answer. And this stairway works like no other stairway. It works in the opposite direction of all the stairways you've seen. My presence here confirms to you that God comes to you. So Jesus is the stairway. Stairway. He's the new Bethel. He's the new house of God. He's the new place or the house where God dwells. He's the place of God's presence. And by dealing with the sin in our heart, by taking the punishment on the cross for us, he opens up heaven to you and me. Jesus clearly is the final decisive connection between us and God. And there are so many implications of that. Uh, we haven't got time to look at them. But one is this. If you're here this morning and you feel weak, if you feel broken or crushed, you can come to Jesus because he descends to you. He does not ask you to climb to him. He does not wait until you have a certain level of goodness or a certain 
maturity as a Christian, but he comes to you right now, even today. And that's good news. Our entry into the presence of God is not based on our works, but his. And Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I can encounter you anywhere, anytime. Heaven's gate is open. And you know what? Our response to that should be, we will drop everything in order to receive it. That's what Nathaniel does. It's what Jacob does. To not be satisfied with just believing, but knowing God experiencing God, encountering God, not putting up with just survival or maintenance, but we need to count, encounter him too, regularly. And that's what I think God wants to underline in our lives as we enter this sort of next chapter in the life of Mosaic Church, encounter with Jesus. And God has put a hunger for him in your hearts, and you're either ignoring it, You're either feeding yourself on other stuff or you're allowing that appetite to grow and that you're hungry to meet with God today. Let me finish with this. I think there are four really huge implications if we pretend we don't need to encounter with Jesus. And I I hope this helps. Number one, church structure becomes, becomes a burden. So listen, In our church, we uh, have three places to belong. Accountability group, mission group, and then Sundays. Accountability groups are our way of, I guess, at their best, they're groups of two or three people that are like super keen to see Jesus formed in each other's lives. So they help each other in the journey of faith. If Jesus isn't like right at the heart of that thing, if there is an encounter with God, then accountability becomes just dry confession without any real power to bring change. If Jesus isn't at the source of what we do when we speak very vulnerably vulnerably to one another, then it will all feel a bit pointless and lack any life. And you will probably finish that time feeling guilty more than anything else, and maybe a little bit condemned. And the point is that accountability groups, it's just a structure. It's just a way of cooperating with what God wants to do in us. It's, it's not the thing that changes us. So if you're looking for change in your life, the answer is not accountability groups. The answer is meeting with Jesus. And accountability groups might help you in that process once you've encountered him. It may actually be through that you encounter Jesus. But if you just take out the Jesus bit, it will not work. And my fear is for some of us, we look at our groups and just think, I'm not changing, I just feel bad. And I would want to just really gently say, is Jesus, is Jesus at the heart of it? Structure can become a burden. It just becomes a tick list, something we do because we know that's what we do in Mosaic. Secondly, vision becomes a duty. If you're not convinced that Jesus is the answer to all life's biggest questions, if you don't have not experienced Jesus answering your big questions of life and meeting you in that place, then you will not want to share him. You will not want to talk about him. In fact, you won't have much to say. Your passion won't be his passion. And so, for those of you who've been around a while, you know that we talk about mission an awful lot here. That's like the purpose of the church. That's why we don't just get zapped up into heaven. But as believers, we're left here to 
witness to others about how good Jesus is. Um, when we talk about that, and Jesus really isn't right at the heart of things for you, then you will just hear, you will hear hard work. You will hear another thing to add into your diary. You'll, add an, you'll hear another thing to feel bad about. Mission and our vision comes out of a revelation of God. And I need it. And you guys need it. Thirdly, holiness becomes legalism. So again, we talk about Christ-likeness an awful lot here, and we believe the Bible sets up a high bar in terms of God's expectation to transform us into the image of his Son. But if grace isn't compelling you in that journey, if the Spirit isn't empowering you, if God's holiness isn't humbling you, then you will feel worldly sorrow for your sin which 2 Corinthians 7 tells us simply leads to death. You just feel bad. It gets you nowhere, as opposed to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, leads to change. And you end up forcing yourself to be holy. And my experience of this in my life and what I've seen in others is that if there's no real grace in you, like if you haven't touched the grace of God, then... All our attempts at holiness are done just because we know it's the right thing. And if you are successful in being holy, then all you find at the top of that mountain is pride. Because you've done it. You've earned your way. You've controlled your way to intimacy. And it is dead in the water. Or, most of us aren't that good, at least to despair because we fail in being the sort of people we know we should be. And we are not very nice Christians to be around because all we feel in our hearts is despair and guilt there's the good news we've forgotten God asks a really simple thing from us find it in Psalm 51 he says David prays to God you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He wants your vulnerability, and you have very little else to offer him. This is God we're speaking about. You do not bring much to the table. The thing you can bring is your vulnerability of heart that says, I need you. He wants your vulnerability. For me, my way through of, uh, for encounter and um, experiencing God in my life is coming through embracing excruciating vulnerability. Which sounds just painful, doesn't it? <gasps> this year, I've just sensed God's wanting to do deeper work in me and... Um, and the deeper work is one of freedom and healing. And it's in the area of fear of rejection and my deep desire to please everyone all of the time and for everyone to love me. And I, for, for my reasons, that's my issue. And in the, even in the last few weeks, I feel God has shown me my blind spots. So how that deep hurt in me manifests itself in the way that I think and the way that I act. And in particular, 
I've found that in the way that I see myself, so my body image and the things that I eat are really wrapped up in that somehow. And it's been very, very humbling to see it. And I don't want to be Mr. Wheat pastor at all. I want to be strong and able and because I think I'll be best placed to lead this whole thing if I can do that. And I know that's not true, but that's how I feel. And for me, the way through is telling trusted friends like my worst junk sometimes. Because if you hold on to your sin to yourself in a dark place, that is perfect conditions for shame to grow. And the bigger the shame gets, the harder it is to let others into your life. Because there will always be things that you're like, this is, I could never, ever say this. And so for me, just telling you that will seem nothing to you, but for me it's everything, because it's my point of shame. And it pushes all my buttons. But I'm broken. I need the gospel to bring me healing. I need the gospel to bring me freedom. And that's a way through for me. And without it, all the sort of the vulnerability stuff that we do, well, it just becomes something we avoid if we have not encountered Jesus. So the good news today is God doesn't come despite your sin and your brokenness, but because of it. He's the descending God. He doesn't wait for you to attain to a certain level of spirituality. He comes to you in the middle of your stuff. And if you avoid him, and if you do not meet with him, then all the stuff that we want to do as a church will just, it won't last. We'll have lots of activity and little fruit. We won't be the people that we sort of we desire to, to be. And this huge task of reaching the city and reaching the nations, again, it will go as so far as we can push it. And that's not very far. So I, my prayer and hope for you today is that you would encounter Jesus. And uh, we've got some time now to pray, to worship. And I feel particularly in this gathering, out of all the three gatherings, for whatever reason, whether it's this beautiful church building, whether it's just the dynamics of what we have here, this is one of the hardest things that we do in this gathering, is this time where we just worship and minister to one another. And for whatever reason, in these last six months, we've had to really, really push to make that dynamic happen here. And I guess my appeal to you is to take responsibility for the fact that God wants to come to you. And that might be in the way that you sing now, it might be in the way that you let others pray for you. We're probably going to ask some of you to come to the side so we can pray. And that might be the way you guys need to respond. And perhaps you've never ever done that in church. Perhaps you need to confess some sin. Perhaps you need to get some shame dealt with. Perhaps you just need to make yourself vulnerable so others can come and pray. So we're going to do that do you want to stand with me? Let me pray, and then we're going to pray for one another. Why don't you take a moment, everyone? Sorry, I feel like I've 
unloaded lots on you. Um, but the important thing is God really wants to encounter you, much more than you want to encounter him. So why don't you just close your eyes, why don't you just speak to him, why don't you chat to God? Perhaps there's things he wants to say, perhaps there's things that you need to say to him. Why don't you just ask him, Lord, what, what do you want to say to me now?